welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to episode 58 of the Madden America podcast. And this week we turn our attention to open dialogue and we chat with psychotherapist and open dialogue trainer Alita Taylor. But before we do that, I wanted to share some audio that relates the experiences of people who underwent Open Dialogue training in the UK. And this audio is kindly provided by Open Dialogue UK and Nick Putman. And it's been emotional, very emotional at times, but so valuable, such a valuable and unique experience. It's made me look at my whole practice of how I reflect, how I interact with people. I've really enjoyed it. I've loved meeting all the other people who were on it. I have great respect for the trainers. I've mentioned not long ago that I was very impressed by their capacity to allow things to happen and arise of their own accord and not to direct and there have been times when there's been quite a lot of uncertainty I think in in the room and they've sat with it and out of that has some come something fresh and helpful. In terms of the educational process I have a mixture you know I have dyslexia, dyspraxia, ADHD, a degree of autism all of these have been diagnosed in the last eight years and so I've struggled through the educational process without knowing these things. It's only when I was on the CBT for Psychosis course that these things came to the fore and I had to go and see an educational psychologist. One of the big reliefs, the biggest relief for me, apart from that self-knowledge, is that I've just been able to be open about it. And that, to me, is inherently part of the dialogical process. It's not that anything big has been made of it. But just having, being able to say that, asking people to repeat things because I couldn't take in the information, and this being done without any sense that it was a big deal has been really, really important for me. So now on to our interview, and this week we welcome Alita Taylor. Alita is a licensed marriage and family therapist, an open dialogue trainer and facilitator based in Tacoma, Washington, USA. Alita has been working in mental health care in various roles since 1992. Her passion is working from a community-based, non-expert, need-adapted open dialogue perspective, which utilizes social networks, family, and co-facilitation with other professionals. And in this interview, we talk about what led Alita to her interest in open dialogue, and particularly her interest in training and facilitation. Alita, welcome. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat today for the Madden America podcast. And to kind of get us started to begin with, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe how you came to be working in uh, the mental health field. Thank you, James. It's nice to be here. Um, So I have been a counselor uh, since high school, really. And um, I remember getting a call from um, somebody at my church um, one afternoon who um, was in, I could tell something was wrong on the phone. Um, 
silence. And it turns out he was uh, suicidal with a gun. And, you know, I sat and talked to them on the phone for quite a while. And um, he was an acquaintance of mine and we agreed to get together. And after that, and um, I remember the feeling afterwards, um, I mean, he took the bullets out of the gun and got help and everything eventually. Uh, but I remember the feeling of the space in between me and him over the phone was quite timeless. And I remember feeling quite honored that he called me. Mm. And I remember feeling like I didn't know what to do. Uh, and thinking about what might help him. Um, and I really didn't know. And so one thing led to another, me majoring in psychology and then eventually working in an emergency room, um, getting my license as a family therapist and also watching One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest with my dad, seeing the way the hospitals were way back when was a little alarming to me, but also very interesting to me. And I, I just really enjoyed sitting with that unknown space of the and also the unusual behaviors that that people have when they're in crisis or even in you know um in schizophrenia you know or what's called that i've i've always enjoyed you know listening to the the thoughts of um of others when they're not making a lot of sense sometimes um Sometimes they do in some strange way. So um, that's a little bit about how it found me. Yeah, thank you. And, um, you know, obviously, Alita, you know, you've already described there that you, you've had a range of different experiences within mental health. And I know that you, you kind of now work or have worked for a while as a psychotherapist and have a particular interest in open dialogue and in training in open dialogue. So I just wondered if there was anything in particular in your kind of mental health experience that led you towards the open dialogue route. Yeah, I didn't know anything about it um, until 2016 when I went to the R.D. Lang Symposium at Esalen and what led me there was I was attending a lot of retreats, um, trying to avoid burnout, really. Um, I was working in an emergency room for over 10 years doing psychiatric assessments and dispositions and admissions. And, and I was seeing a lot of people that were in crisis that weren't really getting help. It was frustrating to me not being able to continue seeing people or at least get them to somebody who was going to see them consistently. It was frustrating um, working in a system that uh, couldn't get everybody on the same page, essentially. And so I learned about open dialogue. It was only just about an hour talk that um, Nick Putman gave and was invited there to speak about and the work made so much sense to me that I immediately applied to get into the trainer's training that was upcoming that year and uh, now that I have learned it I have a even deeper passion to make sure people learn about it who are mental health workers because I have found a huge relief in being able to work this way and it's very 
makes so much sense um, that it's very hard to work another way now. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And so if it's okay, I'd like to ask uh, specifically about open dialogue. So, um, and I wondered if you could kind of help me understand how open dialogue works and perhaps how it's different to what we might consider more standard or more mainstream therapies or, or interventions. Yeah, well, it almost in some ways it feels more mainstream than anything else because it allows for uh, more possibilities. Um, and how it works is actually in the development of open dialogue. It wasn't even called that. It was named that, you know, years later after uh, it was discovered that the rates of schizophrenia in this um, area of Western Lapland, catchment area of um, the areas around uh, Rovaniemi, Tornio, Kemi, um, they were doing things um, differently in order to reduce the number of cases and hospitalizations. Hospitals were overflowing at the time, and and uh, they were charged with trying to figure out, you know, how to treat mental health crisis differently. So they started to work together, go into people's homes. They say themselves they made mistakes working, trying to figure this out, but they discovered that when they worked together, um, it was much better. They had a psychologist, Yako Sekula, from the University of Vascula, was um, doing a lot of research in how they were training and how they were learning to work differently. And uh, Tom Anderson from Norway, they brought in people to figure out, you know, what to do differently. And the name Open Dialogue actually didn't even come until... Uh, <clears throat> until several years later when they looked back and looked at, you know, what it was that they were doing. And, they, and the seven principles were developed or during that time, not really knowing that they were enacting these principles. And what those principles are, are very simply uh, immediate help, which means that they always answered the phone. They uh, and always arranged for help for people quickly within, you know, 24 hours. Um, they didn't have them call somewhere else. Um, they, you know, would send a team of people. Uh, another principle is uh, working with families and social networks. In other words, when someone called for help, they would always have um, the people in that person's life at the treatment. And they'd call those network meetings. Hmm. Another thing they would do is um, they would work flexibly and mobily, meaning that it, they would make it centered around what the person was asking for help in terms of what they needed. So they didn't prescribe six weeks of twice a week or you have to be in the hospital tonight or, you know, we need to have somebody stay in your home or we need to come back next week. They would always end every treatment with, you know, well, what, where should we go from here? What should we do next? Which is a beautiful way of working because what I discovered about working with people in crisis is that they're in a timeless space and they don't, we don't know what they're going to be like in three hours or in two days. And so maybe, maybe they need to uh, have some help with sleep or with something more immediate 
but we don't know that that you know they're necessarily going to need a five to seven day hospitalization just because they're having a crisis in this hour or on this day hmm. um and you know they're all they all share responsibility that's another way that open dialogue works and they welcome all the voices and they tolerate uncertainty and uh they follow up that's that's what the work essentially is thank you alisa i really like that description of it and and in kind of reading around this i guess what really appealed to me about this was you write how open dialogue is about listening and allowing space and and being careful not to add your own words or definitions or perhaps diagnoses or whatever else into the equation and and that strikes me as quite different from perhaps therapy that I've had or other people have had where you you can only play a part in the therapy if you agree to abide by the kind of definitions and diagnoses and words and language that the therapist uses but this this strikes me as quite different yes yeah it is and it's based a lot on dialogism basically um the Russian philosopher Bakhtin, a lot of his work around how we come to meaning and how the definition of the self is made in in social ways and between the space between oneself and others. That's the principle that uh, about polyphony present in the way that open dialogue is practiced is that the more voices you know that we bring in, the more possibilities there are to create meaning and to make meaning. And when we make definitions or diagnoses or symptoms out of someone else's experience, we're limiting their experience. As soon as we name it, we are making an identity for them rather than creating space where, you know, what they are going through and what they're experiencing and what they're trying to make meaning out of, it, it actually gets abbreviated. It, it, it gets taken away from them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as I say, it's quite refreshing to hear of an approach where actually the, the person involved has a, an equal standing with the therapist and with the other people that are part of the process. And I think that's, um, that, that certainly appeals to me. Yeah, it, that's, uh, a huge part of of the work. Um, in fact, it's very useful too. To uh, a lot of open dialogue work is expanding to include peer professionals in the treatment team, mm-hmm. which is very useful because there's someone there that's been through something quite similar and can relate to the you know not being understood um, or being in crisis. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Alita, in, in terms of how open dialogue is, is kind of being used around the world, I, I know myself that um, currently here in the UK, we've actually got a, um, a randomized controlled trial of open dialogue therapy on the NHS being led by some kind of progressive psychiatrists over here but i just wondered you know is is open dialogue widely used around the world or is it is it still gaining traction or you know how how is it being utilized in in areas outside of finland well it's gaining interest and it has the most wide amount of research of of anything on early psychosis that's ever been done and and 
I'm surprised that it's not being practiced more. And, and perhaps in um, places people are doing it and they don't know that they're doing it and they're because it's sort of intuitive. And I think, you know, a lot of people that go into mental health want to be helpers and want to do good. And, and I remember being in the hallways of the ER, you know, between curtains or what have you with, with people experiencing perhaps what might be an early psychosis or what have you, their family there confused, wanting to get them help. But oftentimes, um, I would be creating what I saw to be maybe a network meeting right there in the in the emergency room with nurses and counselors and crisis workers and family kind of coming in and out on the edges of what was going on and and um, I think we need to do more of that um, and maybe it might not be part of a randomized trial or or what have you but I think we need to just question more and more. Uh, what is happening in the moment and um, challenge the tick boxes that we have um, lined up in those uh, risk assessments and, you know, symptomology lists and things like that. When something looks like early psychosis, I think the last thing we need to do is start saying, oh, you know, this is an early schizophrenia and we're going to put them on a injectable and everything's going to be okay. I mean, that, that's just not, um, that's not at all what they did, you know, in Western Lapland that, that has these incredible results. You know, they, they more and more uh, worked from a space of not knowing what's happening and just listening more and asking for more helpers and um, keeping the team that was with that person consistent, you know, over time. So, what I'm hoping to do is that the, the research that is already going on in all over the world on early psychosis can start to adopt um, the principles of open dialogue within the work they're doing. For instance, the Navigate program um, through Stanford on early psychosis using CBT, um, I'm a part of that network and, and they're asking questions all the time and creating meetings and they're saying, what is it with this meaning making work that, you know, like, does anybody else find that they're, you know, ask, having their, you know, patients try to make meaning out of what's happening. And, and so uh, it takes a critical mass, I think, eventually of changing the infrastructure so that, you know, we, we don't need to um, put psychosis and mental health issues into a bucket, just like, you know, having um, a bacterial infection or diabetes or um, something that's very concrete in, in course. I think the psychiatrists, the, um, well, not only them, but especially them, I feel have a great opportunity to start rediscovering why they wanted to go into this in the first place um, because as they're discovering that the medicines that have been developed um, for thought disorders, we really never thought that they would work in the first place that well for delusions and hallucinations anyway. Hmm. And they're, they're in the long term quite, you know, dangerous. Um, so, 
open dialogue is neutral on, you know, the use of medications. They don't, you know, they're not anti-medication, but I, I think a lot of psychiatrists feel, you know, like they would, if once they know about this and once they can share the work with other practitioners and be in the room with a family therapist trained to run a network meeting and with a peer professional that they, they might enjoy being in the role of not having to have the answers all the time. So Alita, could, could you tell me a little bit about outcomes of open dialogue and, and you know, what studies show about outcomes? Yeah, there are amazing studies that have been done over the last couple of decades, especially there's one out in December in psychiatry research uh, that looks at 19-year um, long-term outcomes for people that experienced open dialogue and statistically significant rates of lower uh, unemployment, lower disability allowances, lower uh, mental health service usage, lower neuroleptic use were all outcomes of of this study so that um, people were back to school or back to work and didn't need mental health treatment who did receive open dialogue even after one or two years of, of receiving treatment and less hospitalizations too. So um, I think the numbers are something like 70%, 70 to 85%, depending on what which study you're looking at. So it's incredibly effective at saving dollars and not only dollars, but saving your our society for being able to productive mm, yeah absolutely well it's it's you know uh, here in the uk and, and i think the us is similar you know we we what we seem to be doing with standard approaches is creating lifelong patients so you know they, they enter the mental health system and then they, ne- they never really leave it you know they, they're perhaps on drugs for many years or having some kind of brief therapy but spread over many years or in and out of hospitals so you know i can see that there's a compelling case there that if outcomes are so good and people can move beyond the mental health system, then there's every reason to fund this, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. And, and Alita, if, if we can move on to talk a little bit about training, because you're, you're an open dialogue trainer. And I, I, was, I was perhaps interested to know broadly how open dialogue training would work, because it, it strikes me that because there, because there don't seem to be fixed rules or a fixed definition around how approaches should be used you know, in a particular way, I, I wondered if it was a challenge to to train people in something that's not not kind of rigidly applied, if you like. Yeah, well, this was the best training that I've ever taken in my career, and I've taken a lot of trainings. And the reason why I think it was is because the training was actually given dialogically, right. meaning that, yeah, we came to learn things through one another. And we were supervised uh, we did work outside of the training with, you know, running a network meeting and videotaping it and watching ourselves and bringing it back. We did exercises on what our own inner dialogue was, and we had to watch a seven-minute portion of a session of ourselves and write down every thought we had while we were sitting there. And so mostly the training for me was unlearning or rather allowing to fade to the background a lot of the answers that I've been trained to look for and the patterns 
that I had been trained to see and to put into a diagnostic framework. That's all still in the background, but uh, the training was so enjoyable because um, I was able to learn to listen probably deeper than I even knew that I could um, and allow lots of space to allow the family and the client to talk to one another um, because they are the real experts on their life. And it's quite rewarding, you know, the couple of families that we're able to see with our team just to, to be a human being in the room with them. You know, I'm still, I'm a professional and I'm a human being. So a lot of the work of training is it's never ending, but there's a thing called reflections that takes place in the network meeting that the word came from, from Tom Anderson in Norway when what observing perhaps families through a one way mirror uh, he would say, you know, be talking to his colleagues about what he saw through the one-way mirror, and he'd say, well, what would happen if we took this away and we were in the room the whole time so that we didn't talk behind this one-way mirror about the family, but we shared what we were thinking and what occurred to us in the moment right there and then, you know, what would that be like? And so there's a really beautiful way in practicing open dialogue where, you know, there's a rule, nothing about you without you basically is, is kind of the way they work in Western Lapland because they don't go in another room, a treatment plan meeting or whatever, that's what it's called in, in hospitals here when the whole treatment team gets together for two hours in the morning and talks about everybody in the hospital that's there without them there, without the family there. It's sort of ludicrous when you think about it, but um, it's a beautiful thing to, you know, witness um, a family and then be able to witness your own experience and then decide, you know, you know, should I share this? And, you know, what would be the point of sharing this? And, and maybe I don't know, but um, it's one of my favorite ways of working because it really honors the process and uh, and brings us back into the present moment. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Well, again, you know, that's that's really nicely described. And Alita, I, I understand that that you have training yourself starting in April this year. So, for people listening who w- were interested to know more about Open Dialogue training, wh- where where could they go to find out perhaps more about you and more about the upcoming training? Yeah, we're really excited. Um, the Open Dialogue UK is uh, um, helping Open Dialogue Washington um, start a training. So Nick uh, Putman and I and others from Finland, if uh, it, if it uh, reaches the capacity, we can bring more um, trainers from Finland also. Um, it's opendialoguewashington.com is the website. And they can go there to sign up. There's still space. It's in Washington, Tacoma, Washington, which is near Seattle. And it's a year-long training uh, to learn how to to do the work to facilitate a network meeting. And it's for professionals, for peers, for advocates, um, 
psychiatrists, family therapists, social workers, counselors. There's even uh, psychiatric occupational therapists taking the training, nutritionists that work in hospitals taking the training. Um, and it starts in April. It's Wednesday through Sunday um, all day. And there's four blocks. Um, we go till early 2020. Great. Thank you. And so I just wondered if there was anything else that you wanted to, to share. Yeah, I'd like to thank the healing field in Tacoma. Um, Christine and Poe Karczewski have um, done a lot to support open dialogue here. They really wanted it back with their own son who was going through a crisis several years ago. Um, they found open dialogue and when they learned that I moved here were ecstatic that they're uh, both psychiatric nurse practitioners that are really working hard to um, get state funding for the training and to get the word out that, that this kind of way of working is here. I'd like to also thank um, our clients that we uh, have been working with sometimes in their home and sometimes they drive from pretty far away to come and see us and my team. Um, Fletcher Taylor uh, is a psychiatrist and John Harold is the peer professional and we you know, uh, see a couple families together and it's beautiful working with them and I want to thank them for everything that they do and also uh, for all of the people that are experiencers um, and that share their uh, experience afterwards and want to work to make the system better um, for others. I think it's a, an extremely brave thing um, that they all do. And there's so many that, that have started programs and um, asked me to come and speak. I'm speaking at Peerpocalypse down in Salem, Oregon next month, and I'm honored to do that. And, and thank you to uh, Kermit and you, James, for having me on Madden America. Well, Alita, it's, it's been such a pleasure to talk. And, you know, I just wanted to thank you because I think you've given such a, you know, such a, a beautiful and, a, and clear description of what Open Dialogue is. And, and I, you know, I really wish you every success with the training. Oh, thank you. And I hope that we will be having more and more trainings to come. Thank you, James. So I just want to thank Alita for taking the time to chat for the podcast and to say that if you'd like to know more about the upcoming training, you can visit the website opendialoguewashington.com. Alternatively, you can find links on the post that accompanies this interview on maddenamerica.com. So as always, thanks for listening and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates. 